Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. How are you? Good evening, Russ. I'm fine. It's evening where Tom is. It's evening where I am, too. And Yvonne, Yvonne is here again, like two weeks in a row or whatever it is. I'm going to like fall over. I don't know what's going on here. Exciting. (laughs) So, so Yvonne is here with her flowers again. I love my flowers. And are those the same flowers as last time or did you get new ones? They are. This is, they last for two weeks and this is week two. So if I'm on next week, you may see new flowers. (laughs) But you should make them exactly the same so we can't tell the difference. What fun is that? (laughs) And I have to start tweeting a picture. Yeah, you have to start tweeting a picture of your flowers so people understand what we're talking about. So this week on The Hedge, we have Jacob Hess. Now, Jacob, you are from a training company. I can't remember the name. NG Next Gen T, is that correct? Next Gen T, NGT for short. So you got it right there, Russ. That's right. All right, awesome. So, Jacob, He's told me that he, he saw me at Cisco Live once. Boy, that was when I was a much younger version of me. <laughs> I think that was 2009. Oh, wow. On that. That's, wow, that's, yeah, a much younger version of me. Don't do the math, Russ. You'd be happier if you don't do the math. <laughs> <I know>. exactly. <laughs> so Jacob does a lot of training, and he was telling me when we were chatting one day that uh, he does, brings a lot of history in, and I thought that was an interesting perspective on training and thinking about history in, in, in relationship to doing training and to teaching people networking. So why don't you explain a little bit, Jacob, uh, where you come from on that, on that score, why you include history. Thanks, Russ. I'll do that. And, and just to give some context and perspective, when Russ and I were talking previously, you know, we both kind of agreed history is very important in training. And, and you know, Russ has a lot, of, a lot of interviews he's done with prominent figures and the history of the internet and just the history of technology in general. And so, yeah, it was a good conversation to have. And, and basically, in our training programs, you know, I know it's important for up-and-coming people to understand that really these technology systems we have are human systems. So bringing human, humanity into the mix of all this, I think, is important because human minds have created all these technologies. And it's important for people to understand how much effort has really gone into developing this technologies that we have today and that we really take for granted. So it's really keeping it more human, understanding that it's taken a lot of work and effort to get to where we are today and reminding people, especially people who are up and coming because people are getting born into the internet age these days. And that's just something that's kind of, kind of crazy for me to even fathom is where we've gone and, and where we come from and where we're going and where we've gone. And, and yeah, again, just keeping it really human. So I think it's very important to integrate that yeah, into training in general. I think another thing that's there is not just talking about how human the technologies are, but that they didn't come out of somebody's brain like Prometheus or some Greek god or goddess or whatever, fully formed and therefore fully perfect. There are mistakes in these protocols that have been worked around over the years. And, you know, you deal with them because you don't necessarily know what you're going to get into when you first build a protocol like this. Um, A good example of what you're saying there, Russ, is um, BGP. So, you know, we hear the story of Jakob Richter went to, lunch, went to lunch and it was, you know, written on the back of a napkin and we sort of stopped listening at that point in the story. But if you look at BGP's history and where, where it's gone since then, it does things now that 
it it was never envisioned for. And you could argue if that's good or bad, but like it it definitely was an iteration. This was not a fully formed idea at the beginning. Well, and there were um, there were problems that we were solving in earlier days, and there are new technologies now that have evolved that have different problems. And it's important to understand how the problems of the time inform the protocol. And I think this is especially important as people start looking at cloud networking and networking that's done more predominantly in software. A good example of this is when you think about layer two and art and how there was this flood and learn technology and so many of the constructs and rules that we have around networking, around network size, were about uh, being able to prevent a broadcast storm, for example which isn't as much of an issue in a software-defined network where you have a control plane where you don't really ARP like you used to. But understanding why network domains were created at the size they were and why fault domains existed where they existed helps you understand why the boundaries are in place and when they can go and when they need to stay. And I think those those are informed by the history of the protocol and why things were built the way they were built. Yeah, I'll give you a, a, couple, a really good example from a book I'm just now reading, I'm chewing on right now. It's a book called Attacking Network Protocols. It's on No Starch. And one of the statements that he makes in, that, in this book, the author makes in this book is, well, you know, Ethernet has this thing where they only carry 1,500 octet packets. Well, why would that ever be? Who would ever invent a number like that? That's a total lack of understanding of the history of what goes on there and why that was why that was that way. That's all. That's electrical. If you don't understand the electric electronics behind this, then you don't understand why fifteen hundred octets was chosen. It's not a random number. It's it's a very precise number for a specific reason. Um, yeah, and think about you know the evolution. I think you guys were kind of kind of getting to this point that. Protocols were developed to do certain things, and that may change over time. They get used for different protocols, even incorporated into new ones. For example, like the history of DHCP, right? We had RARP and then BootP and then becomes part of DHCP, and, and that serves a purpose that everyone is familiar with today. But understanding the history of the evolution of that is very interesting and, and being able to, you know, just kind of clearly see the development of things and that nothing is perfect, like you said. Well, I think another thing you can take away from that is, that the technologies that you invent will be used for whatever the user wants to use them for, not what you intended them to be used for. <laughs> we we like forget that. this. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we forget this. We build networks and think, you know, we're going to build a network for this application. And five years from now, it's being used for something completely different that we never thought of. And we think, you know, wow, I wish they wouldn't have done that. Well, too bad. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're going to use it for what they want to use it for. So, yeah, I think those are all really good lessons you can pick up um, about this stuff and just understanding some of the reasons things are the way they are. And then also learning that just like none of these protocols are perfect, and these people are brilliant. Okay. I'm sorry. Radia is brilliant. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, I, when I talked to Radia in person for years and years and years, I talked to Radia about every two or three months. And she's just absolutely brilliant. I mean, the things that she does and talks about are just just incredible. I've seen her in the middle of a presentation at the ITF. Uh, they'll be going on and on and on. And Radio will walk up to the mic and ask one question and shut the entire presentation down. And you're just like, she just, 
just knows the right question to ask and just shut the entire presentation down. And it's like crazy, but she's brilliant. And, you know, a lot of these people are brilliant. You know, Dave Aran and, and Paul Vixie and these guys, and they, they talk about being in the right place at the right time, but they're, they're frankly brilliant. And, but yet they're so brilliant and yet they still made mistakes. So a little humility might be in order when we're building networks. Absolutely. About what we're doing, you know, that's. Yep. And you and I both know, you know, in this field, having humility is, is a definitely an important thing. And also having empathy for others and trying to understand others. Because uh, sometimes, you know, when you get started in this field, you kind of get lost in the whole, you know, I'm in technology. I know all this stuff and, and I'm so great kind of thing. But we have to remind ourselves that we're human and have humility. But it's great we have people like Radia who are brilliant. And, and they also bring a lot of humanity into it, meaning she wrote a poem about spanning tree, you know. You mind if I read Radia's uh, a poem real quick. <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we know her, right? Uh, ISIS and, and, and Spanning Tree, you know, two of her big projects. And so with Spanning Tree, she created a poem and called it The Algorithm. I think that I shall never see a graph more lovely than a tree. A tree whose crucial property is loop-free connectivity. A tree that must be sure to span so packets can reach every land. First, the route must be selected. By ID, it is elected. Least cost paths from route are traced. In the tree, these paths are placed. A mesh is made by folks like me. Then bridges find a spanning tree. That's pretty, right? Well, I, be I believe I heard her say once that it took her longer to write the, the poem than it took her to write the algorithm, uh, yeah. which, which is... I, it's it's just an irony of of networking history that I think we should all um, appreciate and understand and and but also the the problems that she was solving was uh, loop free um, issues that really what we would call today layer two but even then she really felt like routing was the right solution to the problem that she was solving. Um, and it's it's very interesting that that tech, that the, the solution that she came up to this problem has lived for decades. But at the same time, even then, she didn't believe it was exactly the right solution for the problem. Yeah, mm, she actually good. talks about this on her recording of the history of the networking history of networking that it took her. You're right, Yvonne. She says on that recording, it took me longer to write that poem than it did to write the spanning tree algorithm. And the other thing she said was when her manager first came to her and said, I want you to solve this problem, she said, it's already been solved. It's called ISIS. And he said, no, I don't want a routing protocol. And she said, well, why would you want to do this? And she actually argued with her manager about solving this problem and then finally went away over a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, wrote the algorithm basically on Friday afternoon, and then wrote the, wrote the poem on Saturday and Sunday and brought it back on a Monday morning. Wow. And it was done. So it's pretty fascinating, her. It is. It's fascinating how fast, actually, she was able to come up with this algorithm. Well, base algorithms are pretty simple to come up with most of the time. The problem is pardoning them and making them worthwhile. I mean, uh, when you talk about Dijkstra's SPF, Dijkstra came up with that not even to solve the, the spanning tree problem, but to just, he was looking for a trivial problem he could solve on a six-bit computer to illustrate the capabilities of a six-bit computer. 
because it was one of the first six-bit computers that ever came along. And so he came up with Spanning Tree. He just wrote it. And it was totally off-the-cuff thing that he wrote. And from what I understand, it only took him a couple of days. But, you know, you look now, and it's taken all these years to make that into an actual practical algorithm that's usable in large-scale networks. Uh, we don't realize how much fine-tuning went into that. Well, uh, and I think the, the lesson there is there's a difference between an algorithm and a functional protocol that we use in the real world when there are boundary cases and when there's hardware involved and when there are users involved and we're, we have to think about error correction and error handling. So, you know, an algorithm is really nothing more than the steps or the logic you want to follow to solve a problem. But then you have to take that logic and you have to implement it in code and sometimes in hardware to, to develop an actionable usable product or solution. And there's a wide gap between those two things. And, 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 and I think that's something too, that it's important to understand that it's one thing to write out the pseudocode or to talk about the steps, but to actually take the thing and implement it in a solution that works, that's secure, that's hardened, that's reliable, that's resilient. Those are very different um, activities. You know, this is making me think of is it, I, I think, at least for me, my work is more enjoyable when I have uh, context for it. And and, you know, what is what am I actually doing here? What's the what's the purpose of it? And uh, to me, history helps with that a lot. Um, it helps you to see helps you to examine the underlying philosophy and what you're trying to do. If you're just following somebody else's recipe to put something together. To me, personally, it's not an enjoyable activity when you're solving a problem. You're you know exploring a problem space and then saying, you know, how can I how can I do this? And you think about the history of how these things came to be. That's to me when it gets to becoming a creative exercise. And you know, all the all the lessons that you've talked about, Yvonne, those can be um, sort of extrapolated out and applied to many different problem spaces. But you can't learn those lessons or, or grasp that philosophy until you do what we just did and kind of walk down memory lane with Radio Perlman and, and solving this problem. Now you can take those and apply them to all sorts of different things. The thing I was thinking about when you were talking about that is maybe a little more practical. Uh, be careful what you duct tape together because it's probably going to outlast what you think it should. <laughs> oh, yeah. And again, go back to the concept of it doesn't matter why you invented it or why you intended to invent it. What matters is what it ends up being used for. And BGP is the classic case there. Um, right. I think another really important lesson from Radia's story is that she did argue with her manager. She did not want to invent spanning tree. And how many times do we go through and argue with our managers about something we just don't want to do? <laughs> and yet, sometimes that's what turns out to be excellent. And, and sometimes you just got to go do it and do it with excellence, even though you just really don't want to do that particular thing. And the impact, you know, both bad and good, which, by the way, radio will still tell you she doesn't like spanning tree. <laughs> well, and we can we can also walk down the business problem versus technology problem rabbit hole there, too. I mean, Radius man, manager had a business problem that he was trying to solve, which was he had a customer who wanted to buy a solution that did not exist. And and we sometimes have to walk that line between the solution the customer wants and the technology that the customer needs. And that's a that's a different conversation. But but as Tom was talking, you know, there are a couple of 
maxims or sayings, you know, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. And I think that's true in this arena as well. Like when you understand either the problems that were solved or why a protocol was invented the way it was, you can avoid pitfalls of implementing it wrongly or, um, you know, understanding which way you should implement something, what flags you should turn on, what you should turn off, maybe why you shouldn't go tweak all those nerd knobs when you understand why they're there and that they're they're putting boundaries and guardrails in the solution to keep you from going off the rails. Yeah. And I think that um, when you talk, Yvonne, about business problems versus uh, versus technical problems, what I always used to say, or when I say a lot of times, is on the vendor side, because I work for a vendor right now. And by the way, this is true as an operator, as an, on the operational side as well, is that my job is to create rope. It may turn out that my customer uses it to make a hangman's noose. And it may turn out that my customer uses it to make a really nice signal tower. But ain't nothing I can do about it. All I can do is provide them with the rope they're looking for and try to guide them the best that I can, but guiding them the best I can involves knowing that history and putting it all in context Mm. to me. So Jacob, how does this benefit students though? People who are trying to learn networking concepts maybe for the first time, um, what, what role does history have there? Well, I think it plays multiple roles, Tom. Thank you for that question there. I think one of the role, one of the roles it plays again is connecting the human element to it. And we all know that getting started in, in learning IT A, it's a lot of information, even to learn the language and be able to communicate with people about it. Uh, B, it can be a little dry sometimes, right? So trying to make it more entertaining is is also a challenge. And just adding in the history, bringing in the humanity, helping people understand that people just like you and me develop this stuff. I think it just adds another level of interest and connection to the training element. And, And that's very much needed. I think that's very much needed in IT, given the amount of information and the complexity. But it also helps you understand like, where we're going to, you can be a part of this student. You know, the history is still being created right now. We're part of it right now. And so make your mark, be a great engineer who knows what your life will hold. I mean, where have we come from, from ethernet and David Boggs and, and, and Robert Metcalf in 1973, building the first prototype on ethernet at just under three meg, right? And then releasing that. And then we go to 10 meg and then we go to hundred meg. Then we go to a gig and then we go to 40 gig and we go to hundred gig, 200 gig, 400 gig. Now we're at terabit. Like, where is this going to go and where can you make your mark? And just understanding what is possible is also, I think, part of the whole thing and connecting that to humans. That made me think of something I heard very early in my career. Somebody was, it was in a, some training class I was in and they made the statement that so-and-so, some internet pioneer, thought that layer two was crap. And I was, I, I thought about that and, and it hadn't occurred to me um, that you could have an opinion about these things. Like, why does he have an opinion? Oh, well, this stuff isn't written in stone. And to me that, I mean, we laugh, it seems pretty obvious, but you can have an opinion. Well, if I'm going to have an opinion about it, I better understand it. And to me, that was, uh, you know, it was, it was a, an interesting evolution for me. Yeah, I like that. Some perspective, new perspectives we always gain. And yeah, history is a perspective I think we all need. And it also makes me think back to, you know, like high school and elementary school where sometimes people don't like learning history. But, you know, I agree now. It's definitely a crucial element to our training in general on the planet. Well, and I think, so the the challenge of learning history is not that history is boring because it's not. It's it's the lens through which we choose to see it. And I know that 
a lot of us have had kids studying at home and my kids bring home these uh, history lessons and, and we read them with them and we're like, oh, why do you tell the story that way? And then, you know, we'll go back and illuminate it and talk about the things going on surrounding that time in history and try to make it come more alive. And I think that's that's the same thing that we're talking about here with the history of networking is if you talk about what's going on in the world at that time, what's going on in the industry, how virginal so much of this was, and and there really was nobody else doing it. Um, there are great books that talk about this too. Um, um, what is the wizard's book? Where Wizards Stay Up Late, for example, is a great book about the history of the internet, founding of the ARPANET and how all that happened. I think those understanding those things can just open our eyes to the broader world and also help us see uh, where we fit in that history. Um, and and that we we feel like we're so far advanced. And if we look back to like the 1910s, people said everything that's ever been invented is going to be invented, right? We hadn't really even discovered electricity yet on any kind of, we hadn't, we hadn't really modernized electricity yet. We had just done air travel. There, there's so, you know, we hadn't discovered DNA at that point, you know, and we, we believe that we're so advanced. But 20 years from now, 40 years from now, there will be a whole nother list of things that have been discovered between now and then. And, and we have an opportunity to be part of that as technologists. And so I think we can be fatalistic. And that's, that's not really the right approach. Yeah, I agree. We need to open our minds about it. Even people back then thought that they were at the, you know, so advanced, the bleeding yeah, edge. the zenith. We, we the arrived. Zenith. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So another point about learning history to me that's really important is that I always say that you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. And actually interacting with history, and I, but this is this is comes out of my philo- philosophy PhD, by the way, about learning the history of philosophy and the importance of doing that, is that when you interact with historical figures, you're still interacting with other minds. And these people, like I said before, are brilliant. And so you are you're interacting with someone, even though they can't answer you, you're interacting with their thoughts. You're figuring out what they thought, why they thought it, which is helping you build patterns of thought and also helping you have something to push back. To Tom's point, you can have an opinion on these things, right? You can you can actually have an opinion over Metcalf's concept of Ethernet and how the people in the networking world at that time ridiculed him. By the way, you know, when I was first putting in one of the first networks at McGuire Air Force Base, they told me that the, the telco guys came in and I was helping with a program called PC3. And they said, well, this is the fastest network on the, net, on the, in the, on the base. And it's always going to be the fastest network on the base because it's synchronous and it's based on inverse multiplex T1s. And it's, it's so much faster than all the token ring and Ethernet you have out there. And you'll just never make Ethernet go any faster. It's like looking back in history now, you know, you interact with that and you think, Wow, they just didn't know what they were talking about, yeah. did they? I thought they were at the zenith, right? As Yvonne <laughs> yeah. there was no more exceeding that. <laughs> yeah, that's Good right. Hubris, hubris again, right? That, that <laughs> yeah. this is the best. It's, you know, the 640K is who would ever need more than that? I mean, there's a there's a treasure trove of quotes uh, from technology, you know, and, and think about Moore's Law and how, you know, it's it's computing power and capability. 
is always going to improve. And, and it may improve differently and there may be shifts and pendulum swings, but uh, we are not at the end of the innovation cycle. And you don't know what role you could play in that. If you're learning now, you have no idea. Like, yeah. you know, Radia threw off, threw off Spanning Tree to solve a particular business problem and didn't even like it and still doesn't like it. And yet it's like so huge. It's huge. <laughs> and one of the things that I appreciate now that I probably didn't when I was a practitioner is that um, on the vendor side, it is sometimes difficult unless you have engaged customers who are really willing to talk about their problems and challenges and who really understand them to inform what you do. And so I think sometimes as customers, you feel like you're at the end of the tail that you don't really have a lot of influence or decision-making power. But what I can say is that if you're a customer who's informed, who has a strong relationship with your vendor and who is providing intelligent feedback to them about what works and what doesn't, and you also have an eye to history where things have been and where they need to go, you're invaluable to them. And don't underestimate that value because you think you're just a lowly network person who works for Corporation B. That's never the case if you're informed and can provide valuable feedback. And there's, there's power in that. And there's, there's the ability to shape an industry in that that you may not realize that I didn't realize I had when I was sitting in that seat. That's a wonderful thing to say. I love that, Yvonne. I think most people don't think like that. I think definitely people getting into the career, they don't think like that. And I think those words that you said can help empower people just by listening to that. You know? Yeah, yeah. So RFC 1925 Rule 4, some things in life can never be fully appreciated or understood unless experienced firsthand. And that's your power as an operator, that you experience them firsthand and the vendor does not. And going back to the historical component, these people who invented these protocols experienced it firsthand. So you are learning from somebody just like a vendor is learning from you. You're learning from somebody who developed this stuff firsthand by reading and understanding the history. So I think that's, you know, comes back to the same sorts of a thing. It does. Absolutely. So, um, so Jacob, have there, have there been any, um, any specific books or essays or anything that you point people to if they want a, uh, an engaging, interesting view on the history? You know, you know, as we were saying before we got on the call here, in the podcast here, I was just mentioning the internet hall of fame.org because I think that's a great one to start out with because it gives so much just comprehensive information about the timeline from, from Sputnik launching, which is interesting to take it that far back, right? Sputnik launching into orbit and then taking it all the way to the modern day. So honestly, that's the main thing that I have people use. Uh, I don't point people necessarily to any in particular books, but I, I do also include quotes from people. And I include actually, you know, in my mind, history includes people in the present day. And I think sometimes we don't think of it like that too. Like when does history start and when does history end? Or, you know, when does it begin? And when does it end? It's happening right now all the time. And we're actually part of it. And, and so to that regard, I, I like to bring in quotes from people who are in the present day. In fact, I even uh, bring up in, in one of our modules about real world engineer skills and teaching how to think like an engineer, I bring a quote from Russ, Russ saying, never be the smartest person in the room. And, and so that's insight directly from the modern day that can help people. And so I think that's also part of history. I think we're creating history right now and we're writing the book as we speak. So. 
I, the, the, the foundational technologies, those people that created that, a lot of them are still working. They're not even retired yet. True. Like, I think that's one thing that makes our interest, our industry really interesting um, in how young it is. Um, and it gives us a special kind of access, I think, um, to that understanding. Agreed. And actually to expand upon it a little bit, I said I don't point any people to books, but I do point folks to literature, but it's usually RFCs, <laughs> believe it or not, you know, to see how it was originally conveyed rather than hearing it from someone else. But I'm sure there's great books. You know, there's, there's so many people who have written great books that you can relate to history in general. But, but yeah, yeah, I usually point people to the RFCs. There are a couple of books I know of being written, but I don't remember exactly. I just remember people mentioning them to me. If I point somebody to a book, um, a great one is what Yvonne already said. I'll let her talk about that a little bit more if she wants to. But there's another one called The Soul of a New Machine. I don't remember the author, but it's about one of the very first digital computers built in multiple parts. And uh, it's a pretty fascinating history of that. Another one is um, just go back and read some of the original books that were written. Go back and read Halabi, um, Internet Routing Architectures. Um, go back and read, if you want a good historical book that just talks about the culture of Silicon Valley, there's a great one by Fred Turner called From Counterculture to Cyberculture, Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Network, and The Rise of Digital Utopianism. And that's a really, really good book to give you a cultural history of what happened there. Um, so I don't know if Yvonne wants to talk yeah, about Yeah, the, the one I mentioned earlier was Where Wizards Stay Up Late, which is really more a narrative of, of the founding of ARPANET. Um, and also just any memoirs by people. Um, even, uh, you know, Mitnick wrote a memoir. Um, and uh, th there are all kinds of, uh, I'll have to come up with a list and share it. I don't, they're not top of mind right now. But yeah. anything you can do to read and learn from people who have been in the industry who've contributed even positively or negatively to understand all that's gone on. I think it's helpful and instructive um, and, and can be used, um, especially in conversations with leadership or when you're trying to push through a project or when you want a vocabulary to just explain why something matters. Um, all of that, the more broadly we read, the, the more ammunition we have when we get in a situation where we need to articulate why something matters. And that's, uh, we sometimes get stuck there. You're right. And you'll be a better thinker for interacting with those old books. Just in general, you'll just be a better thinker altogether. Right, right. Well, these, these are awesome suggestions you, have, you folks have like on, on books related to history. You know, I never actually thought of that myself. We, we try to keep the reading a little light in our training because there's so much information to absorb anyway. But one book is more, you know, modern. It's not really history related, but the Phoenix Project, we usually have our students. We point them toward that book. Uh, Phoenix Project from Gene Kim, but no, I'm totally, I'm totally actually interested in all these books you folks have just mentioned. And a couple other great ones, um, Accelerate by Nicole Forsgren, if you want a more modern take on uh, the DevOps movement and how to think about that, um, the DevOps handbook is great. Mm. Um, there was a, there's a follow-up to the Phoenix Project that's on my to-read list that I haven't read yet. Um, can't, the name is, is not the, coming the to unicorn, is it the, the Unicorn, unicorn Project? Project? Yep. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think the, the, and the bigger theme here is reading is good. Don't be the person that says, I never read, because you've just telegraphed to everybody that I don't like to think. 
Um, and so reading is always, always, always And particularly good. old books. C.S. Lewis's rule was he, only, he would only read one book that's modern for two, every two books he read that were old. Oh. I don't think that's a bad, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. So. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Because that way we kind of prevent ourselves potentially, like we were talking about earlier, from making the same mistakes repeatedly into the future. And, and we, we can't, you know, prevent that, so to speak, unless we go back and we, we see and, and we understand what were the things we did in the past and what were, what were the mistakes we made. And, you know, it's, it's all related to the development of humanity, you know, and the greater good to understand all these things. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't have any other questions, Tom. No, it's been a great discussion. Great discussion. Yvonne? Yeah, no, I think we've, I think we've covered it well. I mean, I can always talk if you want me to continue <laughs> talking, but uh, no, I think, we've, uh, I think we've covered the topic sufficiently. So, Jacob, any further thoughts on learning history and training? I think we covered it pretty well, you know. Just kind of wrapping up here, just want to reiterate how important it is. And if you haven't already done this, take it on your own will to go look into the history on your own. I mean, I always tell my students this, we, we build the networks that support things like the internet and the internet is the greatest mind we all have, this collective mind. So use that, you know, go and research history on your own. Go to, you know, the, the timeline of the internet at, at internethalloffame.org and look at the internet history timeline. Go online and research RFCs, like just read some of this stuff. You don't have to read just to read, but read because you're interested. If you're learning about a protocol, go read the RFC that was written by the folks who actually we're, we're trying to get this thing approved as a protocol and, and see the what and the why and the how. It's all in there in the RFC. So I think, I think it's good to, to just kind of, I think, wrap up with that as, as, as an idea. Go to the history of networking and find out about the protocol. A lot of the people who invented protocols are there and yeah. talking about it. So, sure. yeah. All right. So, us has interviewed so many amazing people. And to wrap up on my side, too, I'd just like to thank you, folks, because it's just such a pleasure to be on this podcast with you wonderful folks. You know, you all are, are veterans in the industry and you've been around for a long time and you're making history yourselves. So, you know, it's right <laughs> on point with what we're talking about here. <laughs> Thanks. So, Tom, where can people get in touch with you other than your non-existent blog? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't have the blog yet. And again, um, Twitter at Tom Ammon and LinkedIn. Okay. And Yvonne? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me at Yvonne Sharp or on uh, Twitter at Sharp Network. I am writing, but man, I'm rusty. So someday I may create something worthy of consumption. And uh, okay. and if I do, you can find it on Twitter. I'm still standing by my my thing. If, if you want to write something. Pressure the pressure. So, Jacob, I know there's a conference coming up. I wanted you to talk about it a little bit. Hopefully, people are still listening to this nonsense, so they'll listen to this part <laughs> about the conference, because I think the conference is really important that's coming up. Yeah, sure. So, we do have a conference, NextGenT's first technical conference. It's going to be on December 10th and December 11th. You know, the conference is really about IT training and and, and, and specifically the fields of network engineering, cybersecurity, and cloud, and also leadership. And we're going to have some prominent speakers. We have... We have, uh, you know, a lot of great people coming on. So that's going to be happening on December 10th and 11th. You can visit ngt.live. We actually have Joe Montana, who's going to be speaking. We have a lot of great tech people, too. Uh, and, and kind of the, the, the MO of it is train like a champion, right? Set yourself up for success. Keep in mind that so many great things can be achieved if you put your heart and passion into your work. And technology is such a great space to be in. You can easily be passionate about it. And so really just building more of that energy 
And, and on the 11th, we're going to have a really student focused one where we're doing some kind of career fairs and job fair type things. So that's what the conference is about. You know, Russ, I believe you're going to be speaking there as well. Yep. I don't remember what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about something. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be great. But it'll be it, it'll, whatever it is. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely right. So um, where else can people find you, Jacob, if they want to find you? Sure. I think LinkedIn is a good place, although I get so many messages sometimes, you know, it's kind of hard to get through them all. But you can reach me on LinkedIn at LinkedIn slash IN slash Jacob C. Hess. Or you can reach out to me on trip on Twitter at Jacob underscore Hess. That's my uh, Twitter handle there. All right, cool. And I'll just wrap up and say you can always find me at rule11.tech. And by the way, if you want to see the very napkin that Jacob was talking about for BGP, um, when I was working for Cisco, there was a photocopy of the napkin on the wall in building 24 by the BGP coding section. So I went out one time and made a copy of it, a digital copy of the napkin, of the photocopy of the napkin from the bar in Washington, D.C., where Tom and Yakov were inventing BGP. Um, and I tried to get Yakov on the history of networking, but he, he just declined to. In fact, it's a funny story. I sent him an email, and I got the longest email I've ever gotten back from Yakov in my entire life from him when I invited him on the history of networking. It was three paragraphs. Yakov never writes more than three sentences. It was insane, the length of this, this email. Oh, yeah, you need to come to Philly. We need to go to dinner. We need to hang out. Remember the time we went out in Pittsburgh? Yada, yada, totally. And then he said, no, I'm not coming on History of Networking. So <laughs> it's a little bit frustrating. <laughs> but anyway, if you want to see a copy of that napkin in digital form, there's a small book by, by Cisco Press or Pearson IT, I think it is, uh, called BGP um, for IP Networks or Deploying BGP and IP Networks. There's a photocopy of that napkin in the front of that book on the cover. And also, I just did a series for... Um, for packet pushers on BGP, which is being currently produced. And the title slide, the uh, artwork on the title slide is, a, is an image of that napkin. So just, just in case you're interested in seeing the napkin. <laughs> but That's anyway, real history, real <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> it's wild that it was hanging on the wall out in, in, San, uh, in San, uh, San Jose. Uh, um, anyway, so you can always find me at rule11.tech and here on The Hedge. And thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge. And we'll catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.